Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Ash vs. Evil Dead, Season 1, Episodes 6 through 10. And normally this would be where I would launch into a little bit of discussion of the production history, the cast and crew, and maybe a little bit of the historical context of the work under discussion. But the thing is, this is the back half of Season 1 of Ash vs. Evil Dead, and I just did a whole episode on the front half of Season 1 where I covered that stuff already. And while I do like to let each episode of this podcast stand alone so you can listen to just the ones on your personal favorites, I'm having a hard time picturing anyone deciding to skip the first half of Season 1 and jump straight to this. So we'll just do a quick capsule history as a refresher, and the episode may be a little short as a result. This is the sequel to 1992's Army of Darkness, and the successor project to 2013's Evil Dead remake, originally intended as Evil Dead 4 before Sam and Ivan Raimi brainstormed out a concept that was too long to work as a movie. It stars Bruce Campbell as Ash Williams, Ray Santiago as Pablo Bolivar, Dana DiLorenzo as Kelly Maxwell, Jill Marie Jones as Amanda Fisher, Lucy Lawless as Ruby Noby, and Sam Raimi's Delta 88 Oldsmobile as itself. And to quickly sum up the first five episodes, perennial hard luck loser and keeper of the Necronomicon ex mortis, Ash Williams, gets stoned and reads from the Book of the Dead to impress a woman, causing the deadite entity from the original Evil Dead trilogy to once again emerge from the dark places outside of the mortal realm and possess human bodies. Ash teams up with Pablo and Kelly, two of his co-workers at the Value Stop discount store where he works, to try to find a way to banish the evil again. After a stop at Kelly's house that leaves her an orphan, Ash goes to a rare book dealer who fails to be of any real help but does unleash the demon Elagos on the world, who then possesses Kelly. The trio then go to Pablo's uncle, a mystic, who sends Ash on a spirit journey and exercises Kelly, albeit at the cost of his own life. Ash learns from his hallucinogenic trip that he needs to bury the Necronomicon in the basement of the cabin where he found it if he wants to end the curse, and he, Kelly, and Pablo all head off into the woods of Michigan. Meanwhile, state trooper Amanda Fisher pursues him alongside Ruby Noby, sister of Annie Noby and daughter of Raymond Noby, who wants revenge on Ash for unleashing the demons that killed her family. Supposedly. And oh, hey, that leads us perfectly into episode 6, The Killer of Killers. Premiere date, December 5th, 2015, written by Nate Crocker alongside the rest of the staff writing room, that's James Egan and Zoe Green, with assists by Sam and Ivan Raimi and showrunner Tom Speciali, and directed by Michael Hurst. Hurst is an actor as well as a director, instantly recognizable to anyone who's followed Sam Raimi's producing career as Eolus from Hercules and Xena but he's kept busy in a number of other projects as well, most recently as a director for the series My Life is Murder, and most recently as an actor in Princess of Chaos. He is definitely a man who keeps busy. But he's behind the camera on this one, while Lucy Lawless is very much front and center in the cold open. She and Amanda are pulling up to Pablo's uncle's homestead, now rendered vulnerable after his death destroyed the spirit wards on the property, to see if they can find Ash and the Necronomicon. They're just a little too late, though, in more ways than one. With the wards gone, the unseen force can get onto the property, and it possesses Pablo's dead uncle. 
He crawls out of the flames, ready to murder Amanda, but Ruby grabs a scythe and impales him. As with the other Deadites, this one recognizes Ruby, calling her a double-crosser, and telling Ruby the demons will never let her get the Necronomicon for herself before dragging her into the funeral pyre, which explodes as the title card drops. So for anyone thinking she might be a little bit more than she lets on, this is definitely some evidence in your corner. When we come back, Amanda sees Ash's car and trailer in the distance driving away and decides to give chase rather than trying to find out what happened to Ruby. She steals Ruby's car, noticing that Ash's undead hand, which Ruby and Amanda were using to track him, has vanished, but not really knowing what to do about it, and gives chase. Later, Ash and his friends stop off at a restaurant called The Western Moose for breakfast, where Ash enjoys using his new prosthetic hand to cut pancakes and tells the others that he needs to go back to the cabin in the woods to destroy the evil once and for all. He also tells them that he doesn't want them coming along, because it's one thing to have them around helping to fight deadites and slay demons, but quite another to bring them back to a place that ended the lives of Ash's sister, his girlfriend, two other friends, and four people who just happened to be there that fateful weekend. He doesn't want to have to kill Pablo and Kelly, and he feels depressingly certain it's going to happen if he brings them back there. They're very insistent, though, having also lost family to the Deadites, and Ash at least pretends to consider their offer while he's chatting with actor Peter Feeney's character Lem, an old drinking buddy of his who's now clean and sober and running with a local militia. I assume the way Michigan feels like a small town the size of an entire state reflects Ramey Campbell and Tappert's lived experiences. Ash is hoping to finagle some weapons and ammo out of the group, but he doesn't know that Amanda is watching the restaurant from out in the parking lot and has already called him in to the state police. I'm honestly a little torn regarding Amanda's character at this point in the series. On the one hand, it's kind of a thankless role. All she's been doing is jumping to bad conclusions, pinning everything on the wrong guy based on a bare minimum of circumstantial evidence and unreliable testimony from a witness who can't be trusted, and breaking a whole bunch of departmental rules because she's so determined to nail someone for a crime whether they did it or not. On the other hand, that may be the most accurate portrayal of a police officer on television in the last 30 years. While Ash and Lem are talking, Pablo levels with Kelly about what happened when she was possessed by Elagos, and she's horrified and apologetic to discover that she apparently tried to both seduce and kill Pablo. Pablo, who is hoping this might lead to a romantic confession on her part, tries to lead her into admitting feelings for him, but just then the waitress comes by with the check and Ash sends the other two out to the car while he tries to come up with some way of paying the tab without any actual money. And while I do love the contrast between this grubby awkward realism and the usual road buddies spend all their time driving across America hunting monsters and yet never seem to have any problems buying gas and food without any visible source of income story, yes, I'm looking at you, Phantasm 2, the way they pay it off is frankly terrible. Because while Kelly and Pablo are putting heavy objects on the chest containing the Necronomicon, which seems to be reacting to the necklace Pablo got from his dead uncle, Ash is... well, there's no other way to put it. Ash is sexually harassing the waitress. When she comes to collect the check, he tells her that he doesn't have any cash, but he can pay her back in sexual favors, which he's very certain she's going to want. And while it's certainly not the first time Ash has made inappropriate come-ons to women in the franchise, or even the series, up until now it's never been to someone who's in the position of having to put up with his bullshit by the nature of her job, 
and it makes the whole scene feel less like Ash is a dorky old loser who doesn't get that he's not attractive as he thinks he is, or even Ash is a dorky old loser but he's got a skeezy charm that some women find attractive despite themselves, but more like Ash is that old dude who makes lewd comments to the waitress until he gets banned from the restaurant and then waits in the parking lot to quote-unquote apologize, and then the cook has to start walking her out to her car at night. I did not like it one little bit, I did not find it funny, and this is an ironclad goddamn rule of fiction as well as life. Do not harass the waitstaff. The waitress is played by Rachel Blampied, by the way, and does the best job she can of trying to play such an awkward and uncomfortable scene by giving Ash a dead-eyed glare that suggests she's filled with nothing but loathing for him. Ash tells her to meet him in the men's room in three minutes, time that Kelly and Pablo fill out in the trailer with a weird argument over whether Kelly secretly wants the Deadite curse to stick around so she can keep getting revenge on them for her parents' death. But when Amanda sees Ash leave the table, she decides not to stick around and wait for the rest of the cops, and busts into the bathroom to arrest him. Ash is visibly perplexed by her accusations and tries to fight back, but she knees him in the balls and leads him out of the men's room at gunpoint. Her boss shows up to make the collar, but just then the unseen force comes roaring out of the woods and straight through the front of the restaurant, instantly killing two customers and the cook and possessing Amanda's boss and the waitress, who then kill a little boy trying to escape, leaving just Ash, Amanda, Lem, Pablo, and Kelly to fend off the new deadites. Pretty much the rest of the episode is a fight scene, with Ash getting the majority of the good moments even though Kelly gets a frankly fantastic sequence where she pushes the undead waitress face first into a deli slicer, then uses a tenderizing mallet to crush through the bits that don't immediately fit. Honestly, Dana DiLorenzo deserves some leading roles based on this alone. Lem, instead of helping, flees out into the woods, where he lasts just long enough to warn his militia buddies that something weird is happening before he's possessed. Amanda, meanwhile, is finally convinced that Ash isn't responsible for everything that's happening, and she realizes there's no way she's going to be able to explain anything that happened to her fellow cops. She decides to throw her lot in with Ash and his friends, which feels like it should have maybe happened back at the bookstore in episode 3, because they're going to spend the next couple of episodes developing her into Ash's love interest, and that needed a lot more time to percolate to be even remotely believable. But at least this gets her more directly involved in the plot and gives Jones something to do with her screen time. They drive off to the sounds of Renegade by Styx, Raimi specifically chose all the music for the series based on what was popular back when he and Campbell were in college because he didn't think Ash's musical tastes would have evolved even a little since then, as the credits roll. And that brings us into episode 7, Fire in the Hole. Premiere date December 12th, 2015, written by Sean Clements and Dominique Dierks, along with the staff writers, and directed again by Michael Hurst. Clements and Dirks got their start writing online comedy videos for college humor and similar groups, but they've since branched out into film and television and are probably best known for the TV series Workaholics. This episode, like the last, begins with a recap, but as we enter the back half of the season, the sheer amount of plot they need to backfill is so overwhelming that it's hard to pick out any particular details. I can't imagine what it would be like actually needing all of that material to figure out what was going on, because it does get a little overwhelming when you need to boil down these salient elements of 180 minutes of television down to, um, about 30 seconds. 
I don't envy the editor who had to work on that either. We then jump in with some lovely footage of the forests of Michigan, including a beautiful full-grown moose. And frankly, I am all in favor of an Evil Dead Moose movie, because the idea of a demonically possessed 7-foot-tall, 1,500-pound wall of megafauna that can charge at 35 miles per hour with sharp, goring antlers and kick in all directions is more terrifying than anything I've ever seen on film. But we then cut to our ensemble heading on foot through the woods to Lem's militia camp to collect some equipment, Kelly wants a flamethrower, before they head to the cabin in the woods to bury the Necronomicon and end the Deadite curse. But as they approach, they find several dying and dead militia members and learn that Lem came back to the camp acting unexpectedly murderous and tore through a number of his comrades. The survivors show up and gun down their own injured members as the title card drops, because it turns out as we head back into the story that they think this is all some kind of government black ops experiment to wipe them out with a virus in their air supply, and they assume anyone Lem attacked is contagious. Ash tries to tell them a stripped-down and simplified version of what's really happening, but A, it's difficult to break through that kind of paranoia and epistemic closure, and B, it's not like, no, he was actually possessed by a demon, is that much more believable. Lem crawls up on the roof and begins banging around, shouting down threats, but the real danger comes from one of the militiamen recognizing Amanda as a cop and immediately assuming the worst. They see Lem dragging one of their number down into a supply vault and decide to handcuff Amanda and Ash together and throw them in with him, while Kelly and Pablo escape in the confusion. The rest of the militia gives chase, and the next several scenes cut back and forth between Ash and Amanda exploring the subterranean bunker and Pablo and Kelly evading pursuit. And also Ruby, back at Pablo's uncle's house, emerging from the funeral pyre completely intact, despite having her clothes burned away, covered in ash and soot, and extremely pissed off. The nudity is handled tastefully, I'm sure in no small part because of her personal relationship to Tappert. Lem finds Ash and Amanda and begins chasing them through the vault, using kerosene and road flares as his weapon of choice, while Pablo and Kelly in the woods discuss their choice of signature weapons. They get recaptured, but another militia man gets possessed and kills the soldiers who are tying them up, and even though I could have done without the threats of sexual violence against Kelly in this sequence, I have to say, this is the kind of gnarly and brutal violence the franchise does so well. When the Deadite slams one soldier's head into a truck's tow hitch over and over and over again until it's a dented ruin and his face is just a mess of bloody flesh, it is unforgettably gruesome violence that really delivers the kind of horror you don't see very often on television. The Deadite then goes after Kelly, but Pablo manages to get behind the wheel of the truck and crushes the zombie against the trunk of a tree. Ruby, meanwhile, finds a change of clothes and her old car sitting in the parking lot of the Western Moose, and she gets back in pursuit despite her obvious frustration at not having an undead hand to guide her. I don't think Lawless even gets a line in this episode, but she's nonetheless awesome. Pablo disguises himself as the gas-masked militiaman who got possessed, despite the minor complication of him coming back to life for one last spirited attempt at murder, and Kelly learns how to shoot an assault rifle by firing straight past Pablo and taking him down again. There is an absolutely hilarious amount of fake blood in this scene, and it's downright glorious. 
and Ash and Amanda get flirty with each other while they tag-team Lem, finally putting a pickaxe through his head in a sequence that's supposed to develop the notion of them as a putative couple, but doesn't really work because they've spent six previous episodes setting up Ash as a total loser who only gets any kind of sex at all due to his sheer persistence in hitting on woman after woman after woman until he at least finds someone willing to have a one-night stand with him, and Amanda doesn't fit that profile. It's clumsy and I think I'm more frustrated with it the second time around because I know what it's all in service to. In any event, Kelly and Pablo catch the militia off guard and force them to let Ash and Amanda go, then rob them of all their cool violent toys before killing yet another deadite to prove that they're actually all on the same side. They release the survivors and head for the cabin, but Ash dips out before telling them where it is because he can't risk bringing anyone he cares about with him. He heads through the woods on foot alone, not knowing that his hand has been heading through the woods on finger to meet him. A cover of Time Has Come Today, recorded exclusively by Bootsy Collins for this series, plays us out as the credits roll. I can't get over how cool that is, by the way. Bootsy Collins has worked with everyone from James Brown to Parliament slash Funkadelic to Fatboy Slim, and he's a genuine foundational legend of the funk subgenre. It's probably the coolest needle drop in the whole series so far. And from that dizzying high, we go to what's probably my least favorite episode of the whole first season, Ashes to Ashes. Premiere date, December 19th, 2015, written by MJ Bassett alongside the writer's room, and directed by Tony Tilts. I mentioned Bassett in my last episode on the Ash vs. Evil Dead franchise as a director, but she also writes as well. She was responsible for the screenplays of most of her movies, including Solomon Kane, Rogue, and Silent Hill Revelations. You may see some of those credits under her dead name, incidentally. She came out as trans back in 2017. And Tony Tills is a longtime TV director who's done work on Farscape, Mr. Midnight, the Wolf Creek television show, and in what could be the most whiplash-inducing tonal shift in this entire podcast, 166 episodes of Bananas in Pajamas. He has the range, folks. He has the range. And I'll be fair, I don't think either one of these two is responsible for the problems with this episode. This feels like a showrunner issue, because the biggest problem is the arc plot running through it. After the recap, we start with Ash walking through the woods, returning to the cabin where everything began. He finds dead birds and rabbits in the skeletal woods, the legacy of the unnatural and tainted environment, and the infamous, and meticulously recreated, cabin waiting for him. Seriously, they got details like the bullet holes in the doors and the placement of the boards on the windows. It's amazing. Honey, I'm home, he says, tooling up with all his gear as the title card drops. And when we come back in, the nostalgia hits come early and often. We get the banging porch swing that stops as he approaches, we get ghostly voiceovers from the first two movies, and in a major plot contrivance we get Amanda, who spread out along with Pablo and Kelly in hopes of finding him. As someone who spent a lot of time in the forests of northern Minnesota, I find this more than a little bit difficult to believe. You'd be amazed at how lost you can get in just a few hundred square feet of forest. Not that I've got any horror stories or anything, but you really have to know where the landmarks are to find someone. The odds of just randomly bumping into a particular spot, especially one deep in the woods like this, are pretty low. And apparently the plan when they do find Ash was to make no noise, do nothing to alert or find the others, and just hang out with him while everyone else wandered off in a different direction and starved to death. 
The two of them go inside, and everything's exactly as it was. Boards on the windows, the deer trophy on the wall, until it falls off in a cheap jump scare. Cellar door chained up, even though it wasn't when he involuntarily left. Okay, I'm probably nitpicking here. It certainly seems like the cabin is capable of opening, closing, locking, and unlocking any doors it wants to, especially given what we see in subsequent episodes. Amanda suggests finding a crowbar, and they split up so that Ash can go to the workshed to get one while Amanda keeps an eye on the book because suddenly everyone is grabbing the idiot ball with both hands to get to the predetermined conclusion of this episode. And sure enough, we see Ash's hand inside the walls, just waiting for someone to do something stupid, only it's got more of a forearm than it once did, and it appears to be growing as we watch. And then an eye opens on it. I am of two minds about this. Certainly, it's not without precedent in the franchise. This is obviously reminiscent of Army of Darkness, much like Ash's Nintendo Power Glove, and I can respect that by the rules we've already established, Ash's possessed mirror doubles will grow to full size if in some way dismembered or diminished. And the hand, well it comes from a bite, was also the hand he put into the liquid mirror in the first two movies. So it certainly follows the motif, but it follows it kind of imitatively, instead of doing something new and interesting with the idea, and I wish we'd gotten something a bit more cleverly sinister, like having it assemble deadite body parts into a new form for itself or something. In any event, while Ash and Amanda are at the cabin, Kelly and Pablo run into a trio of New Zealander hikers on vacation in Michigan. Brad, played by Ido Drent, his wife Melissa, played by Indiana Evans, and his sister Heather, played by modern-day scream queen Samara Weaving. Drent hasn't done a ton of work, although he was in the Broken Wood Mysteries, giving him a very tangential connection to Peter Jackson's movie Braindead, and Indiana Evans has mostly appeared in New Zealand film and television save for a recent appearance in Thor Love and Thunder, which was directed by Taika Waititi, another New Zealand success story who got his start in horror comedy. But Weaving is a genuine headliner, with leading roles in Monster Trucks, Mayhem, The Babysitter and its sequel, the TV miniseries version of Picnic at Hanging Rock, Bill and Ted Face the Music, Snake Eyes, not the Nicolas Cage one from the 90s, the G.I. Joe spinoff, and Ready or Not. Oh, and Scream 6, not that you should maybe put a pin in that for Spooky Season or anything. Brad, Melissa, and Heather have passed the cabin on their hike, and agree to show Pablo and Kelly to it which feels like an irresponsible thing to ask them to do, given that Ash has spent the last two episodes running telling Kelly and Pablo that literally everyone who goes there after dark dies a gruesome and horrible death, and these three don't even look like they could fend off an angry kitten. Spoiler alert, all three will wind up very dead by the end of the season, and that's pretty much on Pablo and Kelly. But of course, they don't know that at the time, and they start heading cabinwards. Ash, meanwhile, starts up the generator to get some lights on, which was a surprisingly vocal complaint from a number of people about the 2013 Evil Dead, who all wondered how they had power at the cabin. I guess everyone just wants these rousing generator maintenance scenes. And goes to the workshed, where Linda's skull is still in the vise with a chainsaw wound right down the center. Surprisingly shallow, honestly. I really thought he went all the way through hot dog style. But when he tries to leave, the door slams shut and refuses to open, trapping him with his worst memory. Inside the cabin, Amanda finds the old tape recorder, and it begins playing in a slow, grinding crawl that's one of the most wonderfully atmospheric and creepy moments in the whole series. 
I love it. On the hike, Heather asks Kelly if Pablo is seeing anyone, and she says he is without specifying who. So there's perhaps a little more two-sided romantic tension here than we imagined? They leave the hikers a half mile away from the cabin, hopefully not in the death radius, and head to meet up with Ash. And as you can imagine, Linda's head comes back to life, this time played by Rebecca Farrell, and taunts Ash by telling him that Amanda's going to die in the cabin just like everyone he's ever loved, while Amanda gets a visit from someone who looks just like Ash but has an undead right hand which she takes a frustratingly long time to notice, especially because Evil Ash 2.0 holds it so conspicuously out of view of the camera that by the time we get the big reveal, we're already expecting it. It's a lot like the MST3K episode Space Mutiny, where they do a long, slow pan over to the body of the villain while the riffers keep saying, and his eyes open, and his eyes open, and his eyes open, I think we're all way ahead of you here, movie. It's that kind of failed shock reveal. They just overestimate the amount of time they can spend building it up. When Amanda finally does notice, Bad Ash 2 attacks her, and the two of them have a fight that feels uncomfortably like domestic violence given their previous framing of the two as a couple. It seems like it ends with Amanda chopping the hand off with a meat cleaver, then hacking it to bits, but the doppelganger can't be stopped that easily, and he takes the meat cleaver away from Amanda and buries it deep into her collarbone. She staggers away, bleeding badly, and falls directly onto the deer trophy to die the same way her partner did in the first episode. Ash escapes the workshed at last and arrives just in time to see her expire. And frankly, everything about this is wrong. It's a disservice to Jill Marie Jones, who has spent 90% of her time on the series catching up to the rest of the cast, only to die two episodes later. It's an uncomfortably racist decision to off exactly one regular in the first season, and of course it's the black woman. It's so depressingly common to kill off the love interest to get an emotional reaction out of the main male character that it's actually got its own term. Fridging from an issue of Green Lantern where a supervillain kills Kyle Rayner's girlfriend and shoves her body in a refrigerator for him to find. And on top of everything else, it's really perfunctory fridging because they got Amanda involved in the main storyline so late in the season that she really hasn't had time to do anything more than make unconvincing bedroom eyes at Ash before dying. It's just slipshod, and clumsy, and misogynist, and racist. And I feel like all of this episode's problems stem from the fact that its sole purpose was to lead up to this moment. Just a huge, unforced error, in my opinion. No sooner does Ash find the body than his evil twin emerges, taunting him, and Kelly and Pablo finally arrive to find Ash darting off to give chase to his other self, and Amanda dead on the floor. The two catch up to one another and fight, and the episode ends with the pair of them strangling each other with their one good hand each. And really, did we need to fridge Amanda to necessitate this fight? Would Ash have somehow not fought his mirror self if she wasn't dead? No. This was a mistake, and it really kind of torpedoed my enjoyment of the whole rest of the season. But we've still got two episodes to get through, and they do have some good moments even though I was frustrated by the previous episode and couldn't properly enjoy them, so let's jump straight into Bound in Flesh. Premiere date, December 26, 2015, written by Rob Wright alongside the writer's room and directed by Tony Tills. Wright is an extremely busy writer and producer with plenty of genre credits, including Charmed, Grimm, The Librarians, and Supergirl, and he's really kind of a perfect fit for this show. 
We come out of the recap to a lengthy shot of Amanda's corpse, just in case we somehow forgot about the moment I had such huge complaints about moments ago, and Pablo and Kelly staring at it in stunned silence until a wind from nowhere slams the door on them and they suddenly remember that, oh, yes, Ash said something about an evil twin before running off. They give chase and find both Ashes beating each other up, and there's a lengthy we-have-to-figure-out-which-one-of-them-is-real sequence that ends with one Ash saying, you should kill us both, and Kelly shooting the other one because she knows the real Ash would be just lazy enough to try to stick someone else with the hard work of ending the curse if he could get away with it. It's some slightly dubious logic, but it's a funny gag that leads us into the title card. Coming back out, Ash decides to dismember Amanda and Diet Evil Ash to make sure they don't come back later, but his plan is interrupted when Brad, Melissa, and Heather come back because, oh, hey, the trail away from the cabin seems to have mysteriously vanished? Can't imagine how that happened. Again. Ash asks Pablo and Kelly to lead them out, which seems like a tremendously optimistic plan given that Brad had to lead Pablo and Kelly to the cabin in the first place because they couldn't even navigate regular woods, let alone demon-infested spontaneously rearranging woods. But it's not really like things were likely to go well if they invited the trio into the cabin where literally everyone but Ash dies. The five of them head out, with Pablo and Heather flirting, and Pablo kind of surprised to discover that Heather thinks he already has a girlfriend. He takes it up with Kelly, and she tries to play it off as just a general dislike of Heather, but we all know she's catching feelings because Pablo's a sweetie. Ash begins dismembering his evil clone to the tune of Just the Two of Us by Grover Washington Jr., probably the most thematically appropriate needle drop of the entire season, but the blood running all over the floor seeps under the Necronomicon, giving the face on the cover the ability to speak. It tells Ash not to bury him because the only thing giving his life meaning and purpose is his constant struggle against the Deadites, but Ash argues back that he never had a chance to find out whether or not that's true because the book has ruined everything else he ever tried to do. He chucks the book in the fridge and goes back to work, but Amanda's body has vanished in all the distraction, and it's not likely someone took it. And sure enough, out in the woods, Amanda shows up just moments after a false alarm with a raccoon that leaves Brad and Melissa distrustful of their two gun-toting would-be saviors. Amanda puts her fist straight through Melissa's stomach, then uses her as a human shield to soak up Pablo and Kelly's bullets before killing Brad while they reload. Finally, she uses both bodies as grotesque ventriloquist dolls to mock Pablo's crush on Kelly before flinging the corpses at them and bowling them over, then goes after Heather, who runs like crazy, but obviously a winsome blonde white hiker in a story like this is purely cannon fodder, which makes it kind of amusing in a macabre way when Heather's just thrown into a tree breaking her leg as Ruby shows up to save the day with a Kandarian dagger capable of inflicting real suffering on the Deadite. Heather's going to go through a lot in this episode and the next, and it's never funny that she's suffering, but it is funny that she keeps surviving when the conventions of the genre say that she should die, and also she never gets better at these things either. She is constantly a victim, but she's also constantly a survivor, and that's a weird dichotomy that just winds up being very funny, even though, of course, inflicting violence on people should never be funny in real life. But in fiction, it's often hilarious. Amanda reverts to her human form and tries to flirt with Ruby, which, yes, let me please get a queer version of Supernatural with Lucy Lawless and Jill Marie Jones hunting demons and being gay for each other. But of course it's a fake-out, and when Ruby is briefly distracted by Heather screaming in agony, Amanda runs for it. 
The now greatly reduced group puts a splint on Heather's broken leg, dismembers the bodies of Brad and Melissa, and return to the cabin. They arrive just as Ash is leaving to go look for Amanda, and Ruby must have filled the others in on a few details during the walk because Pablo mentions that she's a Nobi. Presumably he knows who the Nobis are because they had plenty of time to talk in the car off camera and get all the literally gory details about that fateful weekend 20-odd years ago. Ruby tells him that his vision was bullshit, that burying the book will just kick the can down the road and make it someone else's problem, and that he needs to listen to an expert on the Necronomicon and destroy the book using the Kandarian dagger she wields. And God does Lucy Lawless sell this. Even though there's every reason not to trust her, even though she's being a smug and condescending asshole to our ostensible protagonist, she just has so much main character energy that you almost forget that she emerged naked from a funeral pyre just two episodes ago. It's a marvelous performance, and the scene only works because of her casting in the role. Ash doesn't feel like he's holding the idiot ball for listening to her because she's Lucy fucking Lawless. In the end, Ash decides to trust her, and at Ruby's direction, he cuts the face off the book with the dagger, leaving a mess of bloody flesh as the cover, then formally bequeaths the Necronomicon to her. Which causes all hell to break loose as she opens it and begins to chant words from the unholy text that causes the discarded face to leap into the air and wrap itself around Pablo's head in an act of demonic possession despite the necklace's best efforts to prevent it. Ash tells Ruby she doesn't know what she's doing, and she gives the best cliffhanger of the whole season by saying, Of course I know what I'm doing. I wrote this book. Legitimately, I got chills. And that leads us directly into the season finale, The Dark One. Premiere date, January 2nd, 2016, written by Craig D. Gregorio alongside The Writer's Room and directed by Rick Jacobson. Di Gregorio is another comedy writer who's worked on Drawn Together, The Ali G Show, and Workaholics alongside Clements and Dierks, while Jacobson's been directing genre TV and movies since the early 90s with episodes of La Femme Nikita, Hercules and Xena, Baywatch, and She Spies to his credit. I feel like genre TV directors really don't get enough respect. They have to work on the same schedule as a weekly drama, but with the added complications of stunts, special effects, and concepts that can sometimes be a little fantastical and absurd, all done on a lower budget than a lot of primetime shows. I'm glad Raimi brought him in on this. After the recap, which is at this point only a reminder for the people who've already seen the previous nine episodes because it's just not possible to condense all the salient plot details down to 30 coherent seconds, Ash gets up, ready to defy Ruby and her plans to unleash the demons in the Necronomicon. But Amanda returns, one of the great gags is the way she brushes right past Heather, who we all know is bumping up against the life expectancy of a character in her role in pretty much every scene, and grabs Ash's chainsaw to use against him. The two duel, while Kelly tries and fails to pry the book's cover off of Pablo's face. Ruby flees into the cellar with her new creation, just as Ash manages to use his power glove hand to grab the chainsaw by the blade and pull it out of Amanda's grip. She winds up gutted, blood splattering all over Ash and Heather in the process. And again, the joke is just how not cut out for this lifestyle she is. She reacts like a real person would react when splattered with blood, not a character in the Evil Dead series. And Ash is left to realize that if he wants to save Pablo, he needs to reenact the ending to Evil Dead 2 as the title card drops. 
As mentioned, Ash also gets doused with blood. I have to imagine Campbell read that script and maybe wondered just a little how he'd gotten talked into this again. When we return to the story, Ash is preparing to go down into the cellar because he's determined not to lose anyone else he cares about. Heather double-checks to see if that includes her, and Ash's answer is less than reassuring, especially because he calls her Other Girl. Kelly wants to come along, insisting that she and Heather can handle it, and Samara Weaving's little querulous noise is why she's become a horror icon, goddammit. But just as they get ready to head down, the cabin is shaken by a demonic attack, and Ash falls down the stairs just before the cellar door slams shut. Yes, yes, I know, Donnie. It's the most beautiful sound in the English language. This isn't the time, okay? On hitting bottom, Ash wakes up back in his trailer, moments before he read from the Necronomicon and initiated the events of the series. For a moment, he wonders if everything he has experienced has just been a hallucination, but Ruby's presence in the room convinces him that this is the hallucination and everything else has been all too real. She explains that she's not interested in rampant chaos and death any more than he is. She wants to control the demons the way she used to back when the book was hers, put them to a purpose and stop them from running wild, and her conflict with Ash is only getting in the way of that goal. She offers him a truce. She'll use her abilities to give Ash the life in Jacksonville he always dreamed of, and he'll stop trying to get the Necronomicon back and stay out of her hair. Ash doesn't buy it, though, and sensibly so, considering how many times she's already lied to literally everyone in the series, and wakes up back in the cellar instead, which still has the Freddy glove on the wall. He can't get back out because the door won't open despite Kelly and Heather's best efforts, and there's something down there with him, a hollow-eyed, demonic child that stares ominously at Ash before disappearing into the shadows. Up top, Kelly tries to first shoot, then chop her way through the cellar door, but she's distracted by Heather's reaction to hallucinating hundreds of bugs crawling out of her shorts and all over her body. Because again, this is the fucking worst night of Heather's life, and it never stops being hilarious how genuinely horrified she is by all this as she hits every single step on her descent into being a horror movie victim. Honestly, I could have watched a dozen episodes of Samara Weaving doing this bit. She makes it so funny. But all good things must come to an end, and when Kelly is smacked first by the cellar door and then by the outer door in a sort of human pinball game that sends her flying out of the cabin, the whole place shudders up with Heather inside and we're reminded that Weaving is just a guest star after all. She gets nails through the face, a couch hurled onto her injured leg, and a rousing rendition of the We're Gonna Get You song before she's finally killed. The last details are thankfully obscured, but given that her body parts fly a good 20 feet out the front door and away from each other, we can assume it wasn't good. Her decapitated head tells Kelly that it's too late, Ash has failed, and evil will soon flood the world. Because down in the basement, Ruby is using Pablo to give birth to more of those hollow-eyed children, regurgitating them from his mouth in an amniotic sack that looks disturbingly like something out of the brood, while she uses Pablo's blood to write new pages in her unholy book. It's genuinely disturbing, especially as Pablo is aware of what he's being made to do and begs for someone to end his life before he's forced to continue. Ash gets attacked by one of the monster kids in another one of those Ash is competent in direct proportion to the actual threat fights with Three Stooges style choreography, but he quickly gets the upper hand and blows its entire body apart by shoving the gun down its throat and pulling the trigger. 
Having psyched himself up, he goes in to confront Ruby, not knowing that Kelly is outside setting fire to the entire cabin in an effort to weaken its structural integrity and allow her to break in. The fight seems to go well at first on both fronts, with Ash blowing several holes in Ruby's chest and stomach, and Kelly injuring the cabin enough to force it to allow her entry. But Ruby commands Pablo to attack Ash, and he can't bring himself to kill another one of his friends. He tries to subdue Pablo instead, but in a moment of lucidity, Pablo grabs the chainsaw and pulls it towards his own face in an effort to permanently stop himself from killing Ash and birthing more demonic children. Luckily, though, the chainsaw runs out of gas for the first time in the entire franchise, and Pablo is safe. Unluckily, he grabs Ash's own shotgun and tries to shoot him with it. But back round to Lucky again, Kelly comes bursting in, having seen several of the hollow-eyed children, all of which are fleeing the cabin and heading out into the night because that's not ominous or anything, and tackles Pablo, giving Ash the chance to go after Ruby who has completely healed from all her injuries and picks Ash up by the throat before pulling out the Kandarian dagger with plans to give her book a new cover in the form of Ash's face. But Ash manages to get the dagger away from her and finds that it's capable of dealing Ruby real injuries, and he tells her to make Pablo stand down and free him from the book's control. She makes him a counteroffer. If he takes the deal she offered earlier, she'll include Pablo and Kelly and give them a life free from demonic horror in Jacksonville. It's obviously a mistake, but Ash has seen too many friends die to let it happen again. He accepts the truce, despite Pablo's dire warnings about what's just been unleashed on the world, and the three of them find themselves back in Ash's car, heading away from the cabin at last. Kelly and Pablo aren't happy about it. They're convinced that evil's going to take over the world. Ash responds, you see the world lately? Same diff a line that was a lot funnier back in early 2016 than it is now, and tries his level best to pretend that everything's fine and sinkholes aren't opening all over Lower Michigan. The three of them drive off to a new life in Jacksonville as the credits roll to the tune of Back in Black by ACDC. And it's an interesting ending, because it shows the weirdest kind of crab-walking character growth. What we've seen of Ash up until now, at least in those moments when he's had a choice and isn't just doing what he has to in order to survive, is that he's a guy who does the right thing for the wrong reasons. Everything is usually about solving the problem only to the extent of stopping it from inconveniencing him. But here he does the wrong thing for the right reasons. He really did take the deal because he wanted to save Poplo and Kelly. It's sweet, but also fully the same kind of decision another character made in a Sam Raimi movie. One Peter Parker, who found out the hard way that being selfish always bites you in the butt. Which is something we'll discuss another time, because there's still two more seasons to get through. For now, the question is, will I hang on to this DVD set? It's still a yes, even though I found the back half a little bit less entertaining than the front. I'm still not happy about Amanda's arc, I thought she was utterly wasted as a character, and honestly it puts an unpleasant new shine on her scenes in the first five episodes. Knowing that all the build-up and B-plot material and her entire development was just there to get her fridged in episode 8 makes me question why they bothered including her at all, and that does cast a bit of a pall on this section of the story. But there are still fun moments and good set pieces, and I think as a whole it's all worth keeping. And if you want to talk about Evil Dead Moose, a Lucy Lawless, Jill Marie Jones supernatural investigation series, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at Half Horror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as Half Price Horror. 
My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, it's time to take a little break from Sam and Bruce, because next week is my birthday episode. But while last year was a happy birthday to me, this year looks like it might just become a happy death day, as we take on 2017's time-looping slasher by freaky director Christopher Landon. See you then.